0: Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working, or not working, for you. Welcome to our 44th episode of Walks at Work. And today we're going to take a little bit of different uh, approach, Uh, a little bit of off the cuff. It's not so scripted today. We've got a different setup in the room. We've got uh, our sound engineer actually in the room, which is great. Uh, But today I've got Michelle Kitchens with me, who's our government relations uh, liaison with the legislature and with the governor's office and everybody else. And we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the laws that were passed during the session earlier this year, some of which actually had an emergency clause and have already gone into effect. And we know there's some litigation going on about emergency clauses and how they got voted on, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, but Michelle's going to walk us through some of the laws that go into effect actually on July 31st, uh, because if they don't have an emergency clause, there's a there's a time period that they have to Wait unless they say a time definite that they go into effect, and if they don't, then that date is July thirty first. So we're going to be talking about some of those. But before we jump into that, and I've got actually a surprise for Michelle because she didn't she didn't know I was going to talk about this, but because I forgot about uh, this piece of legislation that we actually worked on uh, pretty heavily, uh, and that is the first of which uh, had an emergency clause and has already gone into effect. Um, and we have a program that we uh, operate with the Department of Human Services called naloxone, which provides uh, naloxone to hospitals so that they can uh, they can provide that to people who have experienced an overdose who come to their emergency department, or people who are at risk, or their families or friends. And what we realized during that program uh, in operating that program was that there were some limitations on where hospitals can provide uh, that to people who are at risk. And so we worked with the legislature and others uh, to really expand who is able to provide naloxone uh, to people at risk and where they're able to do that. So hospitals can now do that at any point of service under this new legislation. And also people who have been dispensed uh, naloxone can then supply that to someone else. So, for example, if you're in a school and you get a supply of naloxone, uh, you can then supply that to people who you think might be at risk, or if you're in an office building, uh, you can put that maybe by the defibrillator that's in the hallway that you know shocks people back to life uh, and be able to provide that to to people who might come along and and might be at risk. So um, so that's a I think that's a that's a big win there. Uh, Another piece of legislation that we have been working on uh, with others, including the hospital association and some of the smaller hospitals for a couple of years, is the establishment of the rural emergency hospital designation, which was uh, a a federal designation through Medicare that uh, went into effect really statutorily a couple of years ago, but there were some rules and regulations that uh, needed to be uh, passed to, to provide some detail. And states actually had to provide a designation themselves so that those hospitals, should they convert to a rural emergency hospital uh, so that they can get paid through Medicaid and through private insurers here in the state. Uh, so that was passed. And, and what the rural emergency hospital designation could potentially provide is an opportunity for some of the smaller hospitals in areas where they've had uh, depopulation, out-migration, you know, fewer services being provided on an inpatient basis. Uh, to, to really stop providing those inpatient services and still be a, a resource for people in the community for emergency care, for outpatient care, for transport uh, in the event that they need more uh, higher specialized care. Uh, it allows them to convert to this type of designated hospital uh, in lieu of, frankly, closing their doors, which we know uh, we've had some rural hospitals that have had some significant uh, financial issues, uh, some of which has actually been captured uh, in a study that the legislature uh, has been kind of culling through to figure out which of our hospitals are, are most at risk. And, and there are really, there are a few uh, who are, you know, have very few days cash on hand or, or and are on the, the break of, of closing their doors. Um, and this was discussed uh, uh, with some of those hospitals as part of that report. Um, and I think there's still some hesitation about it. Uh, there's still some, uh, you know, risk and financial uh, kind of uh, evaluation that they have to go through before they, they get there. But um, it could be a lifeline in the future for some of these hospitals. Um, and so uh, Michelle, I know, has read through that report, too. Um, and I've seen some things that, that I thought were highlights. But Michelle, what did you think were, were some of the things that kind of jumped out at you as part of that report?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a really robust report. I think the legislature's first look at it was um, in legislative council. Uh, I'm sure some of them saw it before council. Uh, last, I guess the last time they met, uh, it's it's about 200 pages long. Goes through, yeah, goes through the particularly. There's a kind of a profile of the 18 hospitals that are potentially eligible for this. Um, money that the legislature is hoping to flow to some of them that they think need this, uh, which is super interesting, particularly if you have one of those 18 hospitals in your community. Uh, And what it shows, uh, some of the things that stuck out to me were the cyber security thing. Oh, yeah. um, The threats that they're under. um, And then it feeds into a technology space as well. Like a lot of them have some aging technology or they want to... Um, get better technology for better patient service. Um, Another thing that really sticks out to me, and I think people know this, but it's important to say it again, they're just such a major employer in those communities. They're just part of the fabric of those communities. They, you know, support the other industries that are there. Um, If you have, Camden's a good example, I think, Mm -hmm. because they have this Lockheed Martin and these defense contracts and you are going to need a hospital there to serve those folks Um, and then over in mississippi county um, where they have the steel industry i can't imagine not having a local hospital that you know can take care of people and um, but even if you don't have major industry it's just important things so i think the cyber security the technology was there Um, another thing that really stuck out to me is a lot of them are considering adding new services One service that comes up multiple times is behavioral health Mm -hmm. uh, or mental health services. Um, They know that's a need, substance use um, disorder services in those rural communities. So they're looking to expand. uh, More than one hospital is kind of in that space. Um, And you do see a couple of them have already identified that the rural hospital, uh, a rural emergency hospital designation is not for them. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a complex decision. Because they have um, they have a community to serve, yeah, and can they continue to serve the community in a way that the community wants, um, and do this designation, which could be beneficial to them financially. Yep. So there's a real give and take there.
0: I saw too that a, a lot of them are are moving away from having to hire travel nurses, which were a big expense during right. the pandemic. Um, they have. Um, moved away from that and and that's reducing their costs but those costs are are still inflated as a result of the pandemic so um you know without any um without any associated increase in reimbursement rates they're still having to absorb that cost and there was a lot of staffing cuts and and not backfilling positions that um, have gone vacant uh, so I saw a lot a lot of that through there as well
1: in fact, the MENA hospital in particular said that if they could convert all their travelers to actual full-time employees, that their bottom line would be where they felt like it needed to be. Yeah. I think that's just, it's super impactful. You're right.
0: Yeah, a lot of them had, you know, sustainability plans in there. So I guess we'll we'll see over the next year, year and a half as to you know, how, how they implement, implement those things and whether or not they'll need an infusion of cash or need to, to transition to a different type of designation. So that'll be interesting. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, and this was a, a big push by the uh, physician community during the legislative session, was this prior authorization bill that was they called the gold card bill, right?
1: Yeah, um, that you know, lots well, of give and take on that bill, as you would expect, because you have two really important stakeholders involved—more than two, probably. But you have this provider community and the payer community, or the those two stakeholders, and how they're going to engage each other. Uh, so that bill had several amendments. Um, it took them a long time to kind of work it out as, as they will. The way the way it's going to be set up is uh, they're going to have a period of time, which will start in January of next year, go through September, where they... The insurers. The insurers. Um, the physicians that have, or uh, the providers that have a 90% approval rate... Um, Prior to that time period, we'll get this kind of gold card status.
0: So for just to back up for some of our listeners, so prior authorization is required for certain types of services, some particularly surgical services, um, and they have to provide medical necessity um, and provide documentation to be able to be approved to provide that service to a patient. And that can be an administrative hassle, (laughs) to say the least, right and and i know for for a lot of physicians um they feel like it was an unnecessary burden to get necessary services to their to their patients so this is an attempt to kind of right. remove that barrier and right for, so for 90 so if they if they get approved for 90% then they have a period where they don't have to get prior right right
1: and so if you see the bill has a lot of safeguards in it uh, on both sides. If you go through and you see this huge spike in services that they might not normally approve then they kind of have a process they can go back and and retract some of that um, prior authorization Um, and then when they get set up they're going to review every 12 months and just see if you can stay in this zone or who needs to go into this prior authorization exemption zone Mm you know there's there's a lot of safeguards for the payers and then a lot of a there's an appeal process for the providers yeah. as well. And so it's really a streamlining, um, I think, um kind of a regulation reduction attempt
0: to make what we hope is better service for the patient themselves. Right. And not increased costs right? right and unnecessary services. Right. Well, we know too you know, I think at least one other state, I think Texas, maybe maybe some others have have implemented this. So as with any policy, it'll be important to evaluate it to see whether or not you're getting the results that that you expect. Exactly. Uh, another bill that was uh, passed, uh, representative Lee Johnson, who worked on the rural emergency hospital bill, as well, was uh, a bill that essentially implemented what was a demonstration plan at the at the federal uh, level several years ago. That Arkansas didn't really participate in. It was called the Emergency Triage Treatment and Transport Act, and kind of the the, the problem that that was trying to address was that um, you have ambulance providers that go out, and if they don't transport the individual to the hospital, they don't get paid. So this was this was a proposed solution to that. Can you tell us something about what? Whoops.
1: Yeah no, okay. it's pretty interesting when you talk to our colleagues in that emergency um, transport space, they have' a, they have identified we are trans we are not transporting, but we are serving a lot of people that are in this kind of mental health behavioral health call. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a significant portion of their calls. Um, but they go out, they serve the patient, and then they don't transport for a ver- variety of reasons. Maybe they kind of get a plan in place about this is what you're going to do next. Um, or you need to go to an alternative location like the emergency department. It's not the best space for yeah. you tonight or today or whenever. Um, but this tries to address that. It tries to get them uh, compensation, and it helps them deliver, I think, better care. Because they have some options about, we're going to do some telehealth maybe mm-hmm. um, in this in your home. Or
0: we're going to... Take it to an urgent care
1: center. Right. right. Take, or across the stabilization right. unit. Yeah. Um, and so it helps them. It looks like it's going to help the patient too. Um, I they, think from a hospital standpoint, I mean, if, you, right. if you've got long wait times, it probably helps there too. Right. Because sometimes people come into the emergency department and they just end up parked there. Uh, it's not really anybody's fault. But really, they would have been better served to have gone to one of these all these alternative spaces. Yeah. So um, the emergency, I think um, Greg Thompson from MIMS testified and of that bill. Uh, you're absolutely right about the bill sponsors. You see a lot of the bills we're talking about today sponsored by the two chairs, mm. Senator Missy Irvin and Representative Lee Johnson. They, um, as you would expect, they they carried some really important bills this session. And I, I just want to acknowledge real quickly the representatives and senators who worked on those bills um are any of the bills that we talk about or don't get a chance to talk about today, they're just such a key partner in, in in making sure good policy happens. Yeah. So
0: well on this one, I think there's still, you know, the law's been passed, but I guess kind of the next step is for the negotiation between the ambulance providers and the and the insurers and and what Medicaid will pay for these types of services right. to transport folks to alternative locations where they might get more appropriate care. Right. Right. Um, so uh, another kind of bucket of legislation that uh, we saw a lot of during the session was around behavioral health, and I know there's been a kind of a task force that had been formed prior to the session. Uh, they put forth a lot of potential uh, policies, uh, but what were some of those policies that were actually successful? And what, what are the plans going forward?
1: So yeah, the in the last session we see see saw them um, create this um, kind of task force, pretty open task force, trying to draw uh, all the different groups in to talk about what they needed to do. And some definitely we had some bills set up from that. Uh, one thing in particular that that came from that was um, this joining of the Licensed Professional Counselor Compact. Um, that is a nationwide trend. It went from zero states in the compact to probably, I'm guessing there's probably 25 to 30 states in the compact just in the last couple of years. Um, and what does that do? What? It, and there's a, there's several compacts in the, in the state, different professionals, but... Essentially, what this does is it kind of streamlines the process. If you're a professional, a licensed professional counselor in another state, um, you can come here and it helps you get licensed to practice here in a more efficient manner. Okay. Um, in theory, because you're talking about counseling, they could even be potentially in another state and and get licensed to practice here and then practice using telehealth, right? And so I think that's a I think that's a potential good thing. Like if you think about, hey, we're practicing in Arkansas or I'm practicing in Memphis, perhaps, mm-hmm. and, but you've got Arkansas patients. You want to be licensed in Arkansas. So um, that's one of the bills that came out of that. You saw um, the reauthorization of licensing for um, psych examiners, uh, which is something that they had kind of halted. Um, that one passed. Um and then, like we've mentioned before the um, this transportation, another thing that I think parlays into another section of interest for the general Assembly is we saw a couple of bills about depression screening for new mothers. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important. We're seeing that in a nationwide trend is trying to get try to get your primary care physicians to like screen for that. But particularly with new mothers, we know that that's an issue and that this will get Medicaid to pay for it, get private insurers to pay for that screening.
0: Let's get, that gets us into, I mean, a couple of things that we're we're specifically working on. Uh, one in the behavioral health space, looking at the mental health workforce and who is providing services across the state, uh, who is paying for services across the state and for which populations. Um, and, you know, we... We've been working on a dashboard to be able to launch that publicly. So that's coming soon. Uh, we have actually launched um, our, our infographic about the birthing journey, um, trying to, to make sure that people think of it as a journey even before uh, the pregnancy occurs, that it's intentional and that all the way through that where there are so many places where something can go wrong, either for the mom or the baby, um, that we're... Um, putting forth evidence-based solutions um, to make that less risky for moms and babies, which we know it's enormously risky uh, right now for moms and babies. We've got the highest uh, maternal mortality rate uh, in the nation in Arkansas and the third highest infant mortality rate. Um, And, you know, the, both the government and uh, private business and uh, philanthropy all need to come together. We got to solve that problem. That's something that can be solved. It's preventable, um, and we got to we got to all rally to to get that done. You mentioned the depression screening. There were some other things in the maternal uh, mortality space, and maternal uh, birthing journey space that uh, was passed during the legislative session too, right?
1: Yeah, I should I should also say. Real quickly on the mental health space, one thing the General Assembly did is they are going to continue this study. They're going to kind of lean into that in the next couple of years, the interim. So that's important. Um, And I suspect it will touch heavily back into maternal because we know that um, there's some things that that can happen there with with new moms in particular. Um, But, yeah, the maternal health that was definitely of interest is not something you want to be the best at. The stats that, uh, well, you want to be the best at maternal health. You don't want to be the best at the things that we are currently at the top uh, of. But uh, a couple of things that were there, the depression screening we mentioned, but also they are going to, um, legislators extended the time off that state employees yep. can take. I think that's an important thing just to give people time with their babies, and um, to take care of themselves, mm-hmm. um, a couple of other things that um, that we saw that didn't happen that I think could be good good things for the future that I think are still getting talked about is the extension of um, Medicaid coverage for new moms beyond what we do now, which right. I think is six weeks. Um, you're seeing a lot of states do that. Um, Representative Pilkington actually had a bill to do that, and it was just not something that could move forward this at this time. Um, you also saw Representative Mayberry really try to get uh, an expansion of the home visiting program, mm-hmm. which we know, even through our own analysis, is is can be really effective for at-risk um, moms. Um, another bill that I think is going to be really um, important for moms who need uh, better access to family planning, and that is the LARC bill.
0: And that one got passed.
1: That one did pass. Um, Representative Vaughn, Senator Davis, um, passed a bill that Medicaid will pay for long-acting contraceptives um, for moms that are covered by Medicaid. And that'll just help people, um, you know, space out when they have babies and um, really plan, you know, when they give birth. Yeah. And so I think that's going to be an important addition.
0: Yeah, and and just for for our listeners, the pregnancy through Medicaid is paid for in a bundle, uh, and so there, there there wasn't a separate payment for the long acting reversible contraceptive uh, that would have encouraged uh, providers to actually offer that to their to their patients. So that's that's certainly a an additional incentive. Um, hopefully, we can get some movement on that twelve month postpartum. Medicaid coverage because I think we're in we're in the slim minority among states that uh, that do not offer that. Of course, we have Medicaid expansion, but that's not going to cover, you know, all moms throughout that period and provide them continuity of care, and continuity of coverage um, to have that um, that comfort, you know, that comes with um, no transition during that time. You
1: definitely have moms in the gap. Yeah. Um, And we would like it if fewer moms were in that gap. Yep.
0: Um, No gap. No No gap.
1: No gap. But yeah, and we saw some, I think, some cool things about breastfeeding. um, Mm -hmm. Really, you know, some trying to get more education about breastfeeding, particularly for young mothers and um, allowing some of that to happen. Um, Some really interesting things in the um, space for teenage mothers and giving them some allowances um, with their education about time they can take off and how they can actually be with their baby and, and even some in the protects Arkansas bill, which is the criminal justice reform bill that they did, um, from moms who are incarcerated, um, a little more time with their baby Mm -hmm. and that's appropriate. And, and that, that can only be a good thing.
0: Well, I, you know, I think the mantra that hopefully came out of the session was we got to do better for moms and babies. Um, and and so we got to carry that forward. Um, a couple of things that I just wanted to mention here as we close out uh, this episode: there was some additional funding for graduate medical education for physicians um, that will expand the number of residency slots across the state. Uh, and we know that's important because we're, we're we've got more medical schools, we're graduating more students, so we got to have a place for them to actually do their training. And our uh, hospitals that want to do the training, right? That was the one
1: thing I saw in the report too. You got a lot of these rural hospitals are like, we'd like to do that. Yeah. They just need. They need the support to do it.
0: Yeah, and even outside the hospital environment, sure, in rural clinics too, as well. So one of the things um, associated with with that uh, policy work is some work that we're doing, uh, funded by the uh, Federal Health Resources and Services Administration, um, and that is working on some primary care workforce analyses, which has always been at kind of the center of what I've, I've done here at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. It was one of the first things that I started working on more than a decade ago. And uh, there have been very few analyses uh, looking at really our physician workforce and, and primary care workforce more generally. Uh, but we have been doing some work in this space, and we have another dashboard that we're going to launch uh, that looks at the level of activity and different demographics of the primary care physician workforce and we're really excited about it. Um we've we're kind of got it under some review and we'll be launching that soon as well. So that's something to look forward to uh, as we continue to look at at workforce both in the primary care physician workforce space as well as behavioral health. So uh keep your eyes out for that. Thank you Michelle for joining us and seeing what's coming at us in, on July 31st and uh I'm sure we'll be talking to you again when they when they come back in town. When they come back in town. <laughs> All right. Every month. Thank you for listening to Walks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System for allowing us to use their studio to record. If you have any topics you would like for us to consider, Please email us at achi at achi.net. As a reminder, the views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode, and again, thanks for listening.